L'audit de vos rêves se trouve déjà près de chez vous. Choisissez le modèle qui vous fait rêver et profitez-en immédiatement. Audi s'engage aujourd'hui à vos côtés avec Audi pour vous. Un ensemble d'offres et de services pour vous aider à mieux repartir. En ce moment, jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer vous sont offerts sur une sélection de modèles disponibles en stock. Découvrez l'ensemble de nos engagements Audi pour vous sur Audi.fr. Offre jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer suivant le premier versement offert. Offre LLD à particulier jusqu'au 30 juin 2020 sur 37 mois et 25 000 km par an maximum sur une sélection de véhicules en stock et si acceptation par Volkswagen Bank. Détail sur Audi.fr. Welcome to Tez Prodigogy. Our topic for this episode is Youth Speak. It's often considered an impenetrable language that schools have to educate young people away from if they are to be successful in the world. No in it or and that or any other aspects of speech that I obviously never use on this podcast. My guest to discuss this topic in the context of both students and their teachers is Dr. Rob Grummond. Rob is a reader in linguistics at Manchester Metropolitan University and head of youth language at the Manchester Centre for Youth Studies. Rob, hello. Hello. So this discussion rests on an assumption that there exists standard and non-standard forms of English and that young people tend to opt for the latter. But there is, is there actually such a thing as standard or non-standard English with definitions that people will actually agree on? Uh, no, d not really. It's um, it's a really tricky thing to have to define. I mean, we all we all have some concept of what standard English is. It's kind of some kind of correct or or something that's perceived as as correct way um, of using English. The type of English that's used in textbooks, in uh, in newspapers, um, on broadcast media, and so on. So it's more commonly associated with written English, um, and, and in, in that in that kind of concept in, in that idea of, of written English it's it's fairly easy to, to sort of um, to see particular uh, um, uh, particular kind of characteristics and uh, and traditions and so on but in spoken English spoken language it's a bit more difficult um, because spoken language as we know is very different from written written language anyway there are a lot more Um, hesitations and repetitions, and we don't necessarily speak in complete uh, sentences in, in the same way that we'd write that we'd write English. Um, so it is it is harder to define, but there are still certain characteristics that people would expect to be there. So there are still certain um, kind of standard uh, sort of uh, verb forms that, that should be used, and, and so you know things like certain word order, obviously. Um, and certain constructions that come over from written English, things like, I don't know, correct use, so-called correct use of who and whom and fewer and less, and all of these things which tie into some vague concept of a standard way of speaking, um, even though it, doesn't, it certainly doesn't have strict boundaries at all. There seems to be quite a lot of... Um cultural hierarchy involved in that and in terms of making one way of speaking more superior than another and does, is this a historical problem then is this because historically the the, the sort of language usage of of, of um, the, the upper classes has, has been the language of instruction and the language of, of, of rule if you like is, is are we still having a hangover of that Yeah, that's that's still happening. Certainly, I mean that's that's the sort of history of, of how how English became standardised into the form it is. The kind of the, the variety of English we see as standard really came about from pretty much um, an act of history, in, in, in the sense that when when somebody came along to try and make sense to try and 
kind of create a, a uniform way of using English. Um, they obviously opted for the variety of English that was concentrated around the, the, where the power was in the country. So that's kind of, you know, London, Oxford and Cambridge or whatever. So that's the variety that, you know, already had the prestige and was then given more prestige by this process. And that's, that's continued, uh, you know, continued to, uh, to be the case. So, yeah, that's still happening. Um, obviously, linguistically, when we look at these things, there's nothing objectively, linguistically better, more superior or more sophisticated um, in standard, so-called standard English than there is in any other variety. Um, it's just we have this sense that it's more correct because it has all the prestige and power uh, behind it. And that will continue when, uh, you know, we think of, uh, like I say, with, with books and all, all kind of published material in terms of, uh, you know, textbooks and, and kind of, you know, well, normal books and newspapers and all of these things follow these these rules of standard English. And so this idea of it being the most prestigious and most powerful form uh, just continues. Is that, is that because we're so used to it then, and, and we're all educated in that, that it has become the most understood in the sense that... Um, well, I don't even know if the research backs that up. I mean, does everyone pretty much understand standard English because it's so much part of what, how we're taught and part of our culture? Well, it is to an extent, but that's that's going by a very, you know, it's actually it follow that follows quite a privileged argument. The idea that we're all um, we all have access to and we're all taught in standard English and we're all in in the books we read and for a certain. For a certain group um, within society, say we take the UK, for a certain group within that society, which I'm part of, I, I grew up around standard English. There were books in the house and, um, you know, I, we, I was very kind of comfortable with the idea of reading books, of discussing things. Same when I went to school, went to, you know, a pretty good school and, and we learned all these things. But that's not the same for everybody. So so for, for a lot of people, and obviously this is going to be the pe people in in uh in, in the majority the people in kind of positions of power are all going to have had that experience so they're all familiar with standard english so it's just the norm and everybody can is able to to communicate using some kind of standard english all the time but this isn't the case for everybody so you'll have people who haven't grown up around standard english and this might be they might have grown up around um a different regional variety of english they might have uh, grown up around um, uh, you know, different languages, so not even English anyway. So if that's the situation at home, then going to school and trying to operate in this so-called standard English is, is like learning another dialect, it's like learning another language almost. So what many of us take for granted, a lot of people simply don't have that. So it's not as comfortable to operate in that uh, in that particular variety. So it is a case of learning something new. So those barriers are there for some people in society and they're not there for others. And again, all of this is A, an accident of history that this variety happened to be standard, and then B, an accident of birth in terms of where and in what context you happen to grow up. Do you think then that when children enter the education system at um, EYFS, so let, let's take it, let's ignore preschool if you like for this for this for this purpose of this. But let's say a child comes into formal education in the standard age of four or five, and, and they're bringing their own 
um, form of English into that setting. In your research, is it common that right from the start we we, we try and educate them away from uh, perhaps some of those features of their their sort of if you want to call it native way of speaking English? Yeah, well that that is what seems seems to happen, and and for you know for for a good reason to be honest, it's not there's no kind of blame uh, on the on the there's no blame on the teachers. I, I have a kind of a little bit of blame on the system itself, but there's no blame on the teachers because of course. They're under pressure to um, to get these young people, children, young people, to operate in standard English because that's what's expected. That's what's expected to pass the various tests and to pass the various assessments um, that, that they're expected to do, and that's what's expected of society. We all know that as young people leave school, enter, you know, go to college, university, enter the workplace or whatever, there'll be an expectation that they can operate in standard English. So it makes sense that teachers and schools will want to um, kind of, uh, you know, de develop those skills uh, as, as quickly and as successfully as they can. The the problem is, I, I think there's two things we need to do. We need to that that, that the fact of encouraging young people to operate in standard English is is obviously good and obviously needs to be done because that's what society expects. But I think at the same time, we can challenge that prestige that standard English has. And so I think certainly people in my position working in linguistics need to do both of these things. We need to challenge the dominance of this pretty arbitrary standard English in society in general. But, but at the same time, we need to acknowledge that young people do need to be able to operate in standard English um, in order to succeed in society. So I, I don't think the two things are mutually exclusive. Because often I'll get into discussion, discussions with people about this and they'll say, well, you know, you, you, it's all very well saying young people should be able to kind of speak however they want or use language however they want and we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't kind of bow down to this prestigious um, form of language. But in, in the real world, they'll be judged for this. So, of course, I can see that and it's really important. So I think we have to do both things. So maybe it should be that my focus as a linguist is to challenge that idea of uh, you know, of, of this prestigious place that standard English has in society, but acknowledge that young people need to use it. And then teachers, it should be the opposite kind of focus. They, could, they should um, uh, be kind of focused on, on teaching young people to operate in standard English, but at the same time, they should be able to do that in a way that challenges the status of standard English in the first place. And I think there are lots of ways that teachers can do that, because I know that many teachers do this anyway. But I think we can um, we can develop standard English skills without putting it on a without putting standard English on a pedestal. I think we can develop those skills while at the same time challenging uh, its status. Do you think that um, I mean when we're talking about this, are we talking about dialectical words? Are we talking about Phrasing. I, I know I put on um, Twitter when when we first when we got in contact a couple of weeks ago about the the in Portsmouth there tends to be a pluralisation of of certain words. It's quite a feature of the Portsmouth accent where I'm from. And are we talking about those sort of um, features as well as dialectical words that might have relevance in in well varying sizes of ge geographical location? I think, I think we're talking about all of those things, and and in terms of accent as well. You know, in terms of pronunciation, I think the the fact is these these um, 
these different forms, maybe these kind of non-standard pluralizations and, um, and, and different uses, uh, different kind of structures, they're all completely valid and they're all systematic and, and there's, nothing, there's, nothing, uh, uh, there's nothing worse or better about all of these different varieties. They're just different. They all serve the same purpose um, to, to communicate. And, um, and so the sort of communication that happens maybe at home in a very non-standard way is just as sophisticated and just as valid as you know, a form of communication using more, more standard varieties. So it's all of these things together. And I think it's pure, perfectly possible to teach the standard variants um, while at the same time acknowledging the kind of the diversity and the sophistication of the non-standard variants. So I think that's perfectly, perfectly possible to do. Of course, there's still an advantage for the people who happen to have grown up around standard English because they don't they don't, they're not required to, to acquire this, this kind of second dialect as many other people are going to do. But there is a real, there is a real skill that these, the, the other people, the people who will have to acquire some kind of standard English as a second dialect, those people then have this a kind of, you know, an extra skill in being able to slip between the two varieties and to kind of switch um, and mix the two, uh, the, the two sort of codes. We, you know, we call it kind of code switching or style shifting or code mixing, this idea that you can easily navigate standard and non-standard, which we all do to a certain degree. Um, but, of course, that, the demands are much greater on those people who, whose more natural way of speaking is, is further away from the, from the kind of accepted standard. I think it's an interesting one, your your automatic um, perception, if you like, of of these these dualistic notion of some of these some of these kids are going to have to have to sort of embrace is that it must be a negative, you know, that they that they have to sort of exist in two different linguistic worlds, if you like. But actually, as you just laid out, it it can be positive as well. Yeah, it could be really positive, and I think that's that's one sort of approach to take in schools. I would have thought for teachers to to really celebrate this this diversity and to encourage it being perceived in that way. And that's you know that's the shift from from you know you hear anecdotally about um, about schools kind of uh, I don't know banning slang or banning regional dialect words, and and you, you know you know why they're doing it. You can see that it. It kind of comes from a good place, but in a really, really misguided way, because as soon as you start demonizing or belittling or demeaning these non-standard variants, whether they're regional uh, or, or, you know, or, or whatever, once you start doing that, you're kind of saying that, you know, your way of speaking is, is bad and this way of speaking is better. And it's making people almost feel ashamed of their own language, of their own way of speaking, which, of course, is going to be the way of speaking of their parents or of their grandparents of their relatives so you're kind of saying it's not just you it's not just saying you as an individual your language is bad you're sort of diminishing the whole the whole family you're sort of saying you know all of your the way you speak is is not right we would we don't want this what if we take the approach that of you know of teachers taking a genuine interest in the the diversity that's already there and then using using that as a as a as a kind of a method or as a technique of getting to the standard, then that's got to be a good thing. Uh, it's got to be a good thing all round. I would have thought it's this kind of people taking pride in their own regional uh, variation, but then also acknowledging 
there are other ways of speaking. And I think those who have that ability, who have that, sorry, not ability, because I think everyone can do it, but those who have that, um, have that kind of situation where they're switching between the two, you know, arguably they have a very, they have a much richer uh, linguistic ability right from the beginning. And did teachers suffer with this as well? I mean, in your research, you've obviously looked at, at, at young people, um, but do, when a teacher is in a teacher role and, if you like, putting on their teacher voice, do they tend to standardise how they speak? And if so, is that necessarily a good thing? I think I think they do, and I think that's, that's sort of expected in, in teacher training um, and whatever. And, uh, and I know some people feel very strongly that that definitely should happen. Um, but I would have, I mean, in my own kind of opinion on this is that teachers should be modeling things in, this, in, in, the, in the same way that we're expecting the young people to do. So if, if the teacher does have a variety at their disposal, if they do speak in a, re, uh, you know, a so-called regional dialect, uh, I, I say so-called regional because I have a problem with this idea that certain dialects and accents are automatically labelled as, re- labeled as regional and certain others aren't. So, for example, my accent would, would never be classed as regional because I happen to come from the southeast of England, which seems odd because the southeast of England is, of course, a region like any other, but it's the region yeah. of the country which has the power and the prestige and so on. Um, so, yeah, I would have thought a teacher uh, should be able to, should feel feel comfortable enough to be able to kind of demonstrate their own regional uh, diversity. Of course, I know people argue against this with the idea that teachers should be modelling sort of standard English because that's that's what we're trying to, to, to learn um, and that's what we're encouraging people to operate in. But I think if, if we take the approach I've just outlined of celebrating that regional diversity and access, accessing standard English through that, then there's no reason why the teacher can't do the same. We're all quite capable, capable of acknowledging that one particular variety of, of speaking is appropriate for this context and another variety might be more appropriate for another context. And I don't see any problem with teachers as well as young people switching between the two as the situation uh, dictates. Do you, I mean, when I've been speaking about this and when, when we've mentioned it on social media, uh, you get so many sort of stereotypes, if you like, about certain ways of speaking. So, you know, there are behaviour assumptions of children judge, judging by the way they use English. You know, there's a there's a class judgment. There's a um, there's an intelligence judgment even on the way people use English. Is that something that comes out in the research, and is, is that something that people perhaps are are conscious of, but others perhaps are unconscious of? Yeah, that's that's really uh, it's a really key kind of element of this that, that continues. It you know always has done, and in our experience, it, it's still happening. You know, we have this this project. Myself and my colleague Erin uh, Carey, we have a project called the Accentism Project, where we invite people to share stories of um, of any time they've they've been they've had some kind of negative judgment or stereotyping or prejudice due to the way they speak. And the stories come from everywhere, from all kind of walks of life. We have stories from teachers, a lot from students, from people working in all different areas. But this idea that it's almost acceptable, um, or when I say acceptable, it's certainly not a a protected um, characteristic, this idea that you can criticize and you can make judgments on the way people speak. 
and people don't seem to get too upset about it sometimes. I mean, people observing, the, pe- the, pe- the people who are the target of these judgments, obviously it's, it's no different to being judged on your gender, sexuality, ethnicity, and, and, and so on. Um, it's, you know, it's just as arbitrary. And so it seems particularly unfair um, when this happens. And uh, through something that is really, you know, just as ethnicity and gender and sexuality is a real part of you. And it's, 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 it's very sad that there's a pressure to adjust um, or to change, you know, something so fundamental about you in order to be accepted or judged less harshly in a particular situation. And I think that's something, you know, as a, as a society and as a profession of educators, we need to address and challenge, I think. It's interesting that I didn't really realise my own accent until I first went away to university because I sounded like everybody else in, in Portsmouth at the time. Yeah. And it actually, it was, a, it was a Jordanian friend when I went to university who just said, why can't you say your THs properly? And I was like, I, it never even crossed my mind that I, I didn't say them properly. And it's that. When, it, when, when it's pointed out to you, it feels quite humiliating, actually. Well, yeah, I think it, it does, and it, it can do, and that's the thing. Everybody, you know, so many people think they don't have an accent. You don't, you know, people say, I don't really have an accent, and, of course, that's when you've spent the majority of your time around people who speak like you, then, of course, you don't think you have an accent. And then as soon as, of course, everybody has an accent, it's impossible to speak without an accent. But, yes, yeah, as soon as you start encountering, encountering more regularly people who don't share um, you know your way of speaking that it, it really becomes becomes clear and so for a lot of people university is when this first happens um, and I think you know from from what we can gather from our own research and then from speaking to students obviously you know I deal with uh, with students all the time and I'm especially interested when they first come to, to university is how they perceive their own accent um, in this new environment and um, Often, I think, we're very interested in, because we have, a, again, with my colleague Erin uh, Carey, we have a big project, Manchester Voices, when we're looking at the accents and dialects of Greater Manchester. We're very interested in how people perceive their accents when they move down to the south of England, for example, when they, they might be perceived as the token northerner. Yeah. And, uh, and see what happens. And, you know, the, the stories we get tend to be a mixture of um, some people will see their accents kind of softening in some way or becoming more like the accents around them becoming less obviously Manchester but other people will will have reported their, their accents they feel their accents either stay the same or even get stronger this idea that they're um, they're almost this that sense of pride in their in their local Manchester northern England identity means that they they sort of fierce they protect this more fiercely and this comes away comes through the way they speak because you know a lot of our research to do with accents and dialects is to looking at how we all perform our identities through the way we speak to some extent so in the same way that we choose you know the, the clothes we wear and how we have our hair and makeup and jewelry and tattoos and all the, all of those things say something about us we're performing something and the voice is used in exactly the same way so that we we we're constrained to a certain extent of course by the 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 accent that we grew up with the sounds that we were exposed to when we were younger that's what we tend to acquire as a as a first kind of native accent 
But after that, the extent to which we emphasize that or the extent to which we move away from that in any particular situation can be seen as the performance of particular identities. And so when people first go to university, they almost have a, a kind of a choice, if you like, the type. You know, we see also when first years come to university, we always see them. There's all sorts of experiment, experiments with hair and clothes and all. We can, you know, we can see this happening. But there's also you know, experimenting with, with voice and whether to emphasize this, your particular regional accent or whether to, you know, try and kind of soften it. And, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating way to look at identity and, and to look at speech, the role of speech within that, I think. It's interesting to me that when, when again, when you talk about your teachers, they talk about that um, shame and humiliation around their accent and they, and they talk about their anger if, if say, there are, southern they have a southern accent and they're in the north and they say oh you've got a very strict voice or if they've got a northern accent in the south they tend to get oh you're the sort of the friendly one or the you know the grumpy one and they 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 talk about their anger at this and then and then they still try and move children and and young people away from slang and away from non-standard ways of talking and there seems to be a disconnect between their own experience and well maybe isn't a disconnect maybe it's a fact that they don't want those children to feel that humiliation too it's, it's, it seems quite complex yeah i think it is and, and that's you know and, and i do i do realize it's it's quite easy for me on the outside not being a classroom teacher to say we should be doing this and, and we shouldn't be doing this and, and i'm not in there kind of experiencing it so i do see it as this like i said, said this this challenge between um preparing young people for the harsh realities of the real world but at the same time using our position as teachers to challenge those very perceptions in the first place. And I, I think even if, even if as individual teachers, people have felt uncomfortable in the past or currently, we shouldn't let those experiences stop us challenging, you know, those, those um, uh, inequalities. So yeah, I think if we, if we sort of, if we teach, if we teach young people to soften their accents or to not use, I don't know, regional dialect and slang and so on, if we encourage people not to do that purely on the basis that they will be judged outside, we're just fueling these inequalities anyway. So I think, yes, we need to do that on the one hand, but at the same time, we should definitely challenge these, uh, these, this, this whole issue. And and instill in the young people this idea that that life that the society is unfair in this respect, and that we need to give them, we need to um, kind of uh, uh, develop and encourage the pride in their own natural way of speaking. And if it is, if their own natural way of speaking is very different from that so-called standard English, then, you know, make it very clear that this is a variety of English that will help you and that needs to be acquired for you to operate in certain areas. But there is nothing wrong or inferior with the way you speak naturally. I think if we if we take it into the classroom and then a couple of examples, and one of the big things from a teacher side that came up when we talked about it before is the teaching of phonics in, in uh, reception in year one and how you know we got comments like oh teaching certain sounds when i'm i've got a broad blackpool accent was a was a, was a struggle or you know i came down from scotland and these particular phonics were a problem when i was trying to teach them to children in the southwest and in that situation 
are we teaching a, a standard English through the through, through the phonics, or is that accepted that we teach it that way? I mean, it seems quite a complex one around phonics teaching. Yeah, it is. Now, I'm, I must admit, I'm no I'm no expert on on phonics uh, teaching. I'm an expert on uh, I know I know a bit about phonetics, the actual sort of speech sounds, but in terms of the sort of methodology of phonics teaching, I don't know much about. However, mm. I would say that to think that one teacher and their way of producing one particular vowel sound that might be different from the so-called standard, the idea that that could be detrimental to a young person's uh, kind of um, acquisition of, of language, you know, that, that just seems, seems crazy to me. I think people are, we're all naturally um, able to understand English with all sorts of variations. We're exposed to different accents and dialects and ways of saying things all the time. And that hasn't, that doesn't stop us. That only makes us more eloquent and more able to deal with, um, with language. Think of, think of children who grow up in a bilingual household. There, there are no, there are no issues there. And they, they, they grow up, um, you know, in an ideal situation with completely balanced between two languages. And of course, in such a complex way where we where they will they will learn to mix the languages in normal communication because that's what their parents will be doing not just speaking kind of arabic here and english here but it'll be a mixture of the two so the fact that young people can grow up in that kind of uh, environment um you know with and actually develop stronger linguistic skills anyway from being in that environment the idea that having i don't know a scottish teacher um using a, a vowel sound when to, you know a scottish teacher teaching in london teaching a slightly different vowel sound um to to children there the idea that that would be detrimental i, I find it i find that hard to, hard to accept to be honest mm. and the second example i guess that's quite common is is in the teenage years with teenagers using slang words or, or certain ways of speaking that that teachers may not understand there's a there's a there's a there's a push to say oh speak properly or you know we don't talk like that and I think the role of slang and the role of um, of of non-standard English in teen years can be um, threatening to adults because we don't understand what the teenagers are saying and and that makes us uncomfortable. How would you recommend acting in that situation? Yeah, well that's it. You you know you've kind of you hit the nail on the head there when you said that. You know, teachers feel uncomfortable and even threatened because they don't understand it, and and so that's why there's a push to you know to get young people to speak properly is to stop older people feeling uncomfortable, which seems like the wrong way around. Really, there's not young people have had their own way of speaking forever. You know, that that's just a, a normal thing, and so people get upset about it. Literally every single generation, there's there's some there's some idea that. Uh, young people are, you know, they we, we can't understand them. That they're ruining the language, and that standards are slipping. And you know, this happens literally generation upon generation. And I think it's perfectly right that young people have a way of communicating that does exclude adults. You know, there's there's nothing wrong with that. That's that's part of how we operate in society. That's how we use language to say, I'm one of this group. I'm not one of that group. In the same way that we have we still maintain different accents despite the idea that all accents are going to kind of level out and everyone's going to speak the same. That hasn't happened and it's not going to happen because people use uh, use spoken language, they use language to, to, to separate themselves and to identify with particular groups and to not identify with others. So it's perfectly fine, I think, and again, 
should be encouraged, and it's it's a sophisticated use of language that, that young people have a different way of speaking. Anyone who spends time with young people and actually listens to what they're saying will know full well how sophisticated it is. It's just different from standard English, and I think again, I think this should this should be encouraged because also if you if you speak to people who, who deal with young people um, a lot, there's there's no I, I, I'm certainly not aware of, of people, young people not being able to then switch into something more, or something that's a way of speaking that's kind of perceived as more appropriate in a given situation when they need to. And this comes from, you know, I did a, a big research project working with young people who've been permanently excluded from school. So working in a pupil referral unit. So these are these young people who, um, you know, would often have especially non-standard ways of speaking as compared to, I don't know, someone in a in sort of, you know, a prestigious school somewhere in, in, in Middle England. But they were still able to switch into something more appropriate when they needed to, when we gave them sort of, we gave them mock college interviews with, with somebody they didn't know. And I, I observed all these and I recorded all these and they were more than capable of doing this. And so, you know, I'm sure there are some young people that do struggle but that's a different issue the vast majority are perfectly able to switch out of their kind of youth slang when they need to my own kids might you know we i'm obviously my kids are surrounded by standard english all the time and but they still have their own way of speaking you know my they're all teenagers they've all got their own slang which i don't always understand but that's that's as it should be i think and not well. Get, teachers shouldn't worry as much, I guess, uh, about uh, feeling that these children will be disadvantaged by it, but they're actually more likely to be advantaged by it. And I guess yeah, exactly, yeah. They're not going to be they're not going to be disadvantaged as long as so. We shouldn't be teaching them to uh, kind of speak properly. We should be teaching them to be aware that because um, when I say we shouldn't teach them to speak properly, that's saying that the way they are speaking isn't proper, and that that mm. that that's kind of illogical linguistically. So we should simply be encouraging young people to no- notice and acknowledge different ways of speaking that might be might be deemed as more appropriate in different situations. So we, we develop those skills rather than saying, don't we shouldn't be saying, don't speak like this, speak like this. We should be saying, in particular situations, it's seen as more appropriate to speak like this. And then that gives the power over to them. They can do what they want with that information. They might not, you know, when I said before that the young people I work with are all more than capable of switching to a more standard variety when they want to, the key point is when they want to or if they want to. But as long as we develop and teach those skills, then, you know, we've, we've, we've done our job. We've given them the, the, the kind of the resources with which to do that. And um, and it's up to them to kind of notice or choose to notice when it is or isn't appropriate. I think. And I guess my final question is: I mean, you talked a lot about um, tolerance is perhaps the wrong word, but um, you know, an ex- a, a celebration, if you like, of of non-standard forms of English in schools, and also about a a respect for those non-standard uh, English forms, and 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 a, and a lack of fear that this will disadvantage in some way. Do we have to go further than that in schools and actually facilitate the use of those non-standard forms, either in written work or, or, or in, in, in debates? I mean, 
should we be giving a place where this non-standard English could be part of of the sort of if you like realm of where standard English normally normally um, dominates? I think that would be quite a, a kind of a radical thing to do, but it would be a really good thing to do. Um, I think I think the problem is we we sort of do that already. Um, we acknowledge non-standard forms, but only a particular set of non-standard forms. So you might look at I can imagine an English lesson you're looking at. Um, you know, some, uh, you know, a poem from Chaucer's time, or you might be looking at a dialect, a poem that's written in dialect, but one that's seen as prestigious. And so, you know, we do that all the time. There's a place for non-standard forms, but that's seen as a respected non-standard form. But yeah, mm-hmm. if we could do the same for um, non-standard forms that aren't traditionally so well respected, like current regional varieties or current youth slang or whatever then yeah absolutely i don't see i don't see that that being a problem at all and i know that i know that people and teachers will be getting frustrated even listening to this saying but it's all very well you're saying that and and you know again we have to prepare these young people um and uh, and and that's fine and there's nothing wrong with there's nothing wrong with um people having preferences there's nothing wrong with people preferring particular ways of speaking and that's that's all right it's just when it becomes kind of judging when we start to judge and we start to say that that way of speaking is is bad and this way of speaking is good i think i think as a whole as a whole society we have to avoid doing that but certainly within education we have to acknowledge that these different ways of using language are equal um but but different so yes yeah, sorry to answer your question one way of of, of kind of um engendering that that idea and supporting that idea would be to allow space for it and i'm sure but i'm sure teachers do this all the time i'm sure any kind of decent teacher teaching uh some you know some kind of discussion if some kind of discussion in class if you've got somebody who's normally quite reticent speaking and they they actually contribute but they're you they're contributing in i don't know using some kind of youth slang however you want to to define it you know i'm sure teachers would encourage the fact that there's there's a contribution over and above trying to correct their 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 speech so i think allowing space for it is exactly the right thing to do again within what's appropriate for the for the context and it's teaching young people to become aware of when different ways of speaking are seen to be more or less appropriate and i think that's the key to everything I have one last additional question. I know I said, I said that the other one was my last question, but just w- when we're discussing then, it, I got a sense that there may be a, a slight risk of tokenism creeping in. So a teacher, uh, you don't want to just do a Benjamin Zephaniah poem and have have the have that sort of dialectical, you know, one of the poems that is more more dialectical than it, it, it's it's um, use of English and think you've just ticked it. And yeah, I guess that, that that sort of tokenism is even is as damaging as not as ignoring it at all i guess yeah that's true and and actually uh, and to be fair it's going to be more or less difficult for different teachers in different contexts anyway you know if you're in a mm. if you're in a particularly non-diverse say if you're teaching in a school and there are lots of places in the country where your you know your your pupils are going to be um uh the majority kind of uh white middle class um 
pupils and, and that's that's the that's the context in which you're teaching then i guess the risk of tokenism becomes even stronger there whereas if you're in an area mm-hmm. where you've naturally got a lot of regional and ethnic diversity within um you know within the classroom anyway then in a sense it's easier for you to well you've got it kind of easy and difficult haven't you? you've got it it's easier to to kind of naturally and um and authentically introduce and celebrate diversity within that but then of course you've, you've got the struggle of then you know the society's pressure to to teach young people to operate in standard english so yeah it kind of it goes both ways but again it you know we've got to give the teachers kind of credit because they're all you know the vast majority of teachers know exactly what they're doing and it's a case of knowing what's right for the context but i think the, the message has to be as a general rule to to celebrate diversity and to somehow try and teach that celebration and teach that awareness of diversity um but yeah in a way that doesn't that isn't um kind of seen as, as sort of tokenistic thank you very much rob no problem